morning, everyone. I want to greet you this morning and ask if you've got a Bible to take it and turn with me to the book of Revelation in the third chapter. I want to greet those folks across the street, the video venue. We're glad, or I'm glad to be able to share with you this morning. And last I heard, we were having some technical problems, so I don't know if there's anybody joining us online, but if you are, sorry. And uh, we're glad to have you joining us wherever you might be. This weekend, we are concluding this sermon series, this great, great study. At least I hope you feel that way. I feel that way. This great, great study from Revelation chapter 2 and 3 called Dear Church. The tagline, of course, is seven letters to seven churches. And uh, as we open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, before we look at that text and we talk about this, I want to invite you just to bow and pray with me for just a moment, just a brief time of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for a chance to open our Bibles and study this passage today. Two things, though, are on my mind and heart as we begin. Number one, there's no way in the time that is given to me that I can preach this passage with great thoroughness. And so, I pray that you would just guide and direct the words that I choose and that they would be your words and communicate your truth. And then the second thing on my mind is just the absolute need for clarity. This passage demands clarity. And uh, I pray that you would make that true today and help me to share these important truths about how deeply you love people who are lost, who are unsaved, and help me to do that today um, with a heart of love. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning as we come to the final message in this series like we began by telling you that by way of introduction, the two words that I've always said were important in understanding what we're being taught in these seven letters that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are the words historical and perennial historical because these were seven literal historical churches in what was known at the time as Asia Minor. I'll put that same picture up on the screen we've used in the past You can see the seven churches there, and uh, that was in the ancient world, an area of the world known as Asia Minor. Uh, At the time these churches were started, primarily under the ministry and the influence of the apostle Paul and a church that he, along with some of his associates, founded in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is an ancient, ancient church there, and it was the first of these churches that was planted back in ancient days. In fact, let me remind you of a verse that we've looked at a few different times over the course of the last seven weeks from Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. We'll put that up on the screen. If you want to know about the founding or the planting of the church in Ephesus, then you need to open up your Bible to Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19. And beginning about halfway through Acts chapter 18 and all the way through chapter 19, you read about the origin of this church. And in verse 10 of chapter 19, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, writes, this went on for two years so that All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And, of course, I've told you before that what he means when he says all this went on is he's talking about the preaching and the teaching ministry of the Apostle Paul, which was so powerful. He was a powerful preacher and teacher, but also church planter. And so the church in Ephesus was planted and had a powerful influence on uh, the entire area of Asia Minor and these other churches were planted as a result either by associates of the Apostle Paul or converts of Paul's in 
the city of Ephesus. In fact, uh, a week from tomorrow, I'm leaving along with about 30 other folks from our church to go on a 10-day trip to Greece and Turkey. And uh, on April the 2nd, we will dock, we'll be involved in a three-night Greek island cruise, and we'll dock in Kusadasi, Turkey, and we'll visit the ruins of the ancient city of Ephesus. These are some pictures of the ruins of the city of Ephesus. That one needs to be, that one makes me kind of have a headache right there. But uh, the, uh, there you go, there we go. But uh, it will be an incredible trip, and then we'll spend the morning there, and later on in that day, we'll actually travel to the island of Patmos, where John was in exile, the Apostle John, and that's where he received the revelation from Jesus Christ that became the book of Revelation. It'll be an incredible experience. I hope that you'll pray for our group while we're gone. Now, when John received the revelation from Jesus, as I said, that became the book of Revelation, these seven letters that we're studying from Revelation 2 and 3 were a part of that vision. And these churches, while they had been planted some 30 to 40 years earlier, had really fallen on some difficult times, at least most of them had. Our letter this morning to the church in Laodicea is the final letter that Jesus wrote. Of the seven letters, the seven churches, five of them had become so disappointing to Jesus that they were threatened with judgment. In fact, only two of the churches, the church in Sardis and the church in Philadelphia, those are the only two churches that received letters from Jesus that didn't have any kind of concern or condemnation in them. The rest of them were on the brink of judgment. The church in Ephesus was on the brink of judgment because they had lost their first love. They had been able to remain doctrinally pure, but they had lost their love. The church in Pergamum was on the brink of judgment because they were tolerating sin. They had not gotten to the point where they were denying the faith, but they were tolerating sin. The church in Thyatira was on the brink of judgment because they had been involved in full-blown compromise with sin. They weren't just tolerating sin. They were advocating sin in the church. The church in Sardis was on the brink of judgment because they were dead Jesus said they were dead. There was virtually no spiritual life in that church, even though they had a handful of genuine believers there. And the church in Laodicea that we're going to look at today can only be described, listen to me close, can only be described as an unsaved church, a church, in other words, that was filled with non-believers, a church that was really not a church in the strictest, truest sense of the word. And to show you how Jesus felt about this church, all I have to do is say that it is the only church out of the seven where Jesus says nothing good. In the letter that he sends to them, there's not one positive good thing that is written by Jesus to this church, not a single word, no commendation, only complete and absolute condemnation because they didn't have a single redeeming feature. I'm talking about the church in Laodicea. Churches beyond the church in Sardis. Remember, the church in Sardis is identified in the very beginning of chapter 3 as a church that was dead. Jesus says, in fact, in chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 1, that they had the appearance of being alive, but they were dead. But even in spite of that, he goes on in verse 4 and says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And he says, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy but there was nothing like that in, in Laodicea. There was no one like that there, which makes this such a serious letter, so serious and sobering, the things that we have to talk about today. So if you've got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3, then stand with me in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do. 
We want to welcome all of our guests this morning, and I'll tell you if you're a guest that we always make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service, and we stand in reverence and respect for God's Word when we do. So follow along as I read this letter to the church in Laodicea. It's verses 14 through the end of the chapter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, there it is. You can be seated, and may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word today. Let's, before we talk about the specifics of the letter, talk about the way Jesus identifies himself in verse 14. Jesus is the correspondent. He's the writer of this letter. The apostle John wrote it down as he received it, but Jesus is the writer. And in verse 14, he identifies himself like this. He says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And I want you to understand that the emphasis on the way Jesus identifies himself here is communicating to the readers that he is God. Now, that's not surprising because that's what Jesus has done in many of the words of the introductions to these seven letters. He identifies himself as God as he writes, and it's important because Jesus wants his readers to understand that he is writing to them from a position of absolute and complete authority because he is God. And he identifies himself that way here in the introduction. First of all, he says that he is the amen. Look there at your verse Verse 14, do you notice that the word amen is capitalized there in your Bibles? It's not just the ordinary use of the word amen. Jesus has more intent here. What does the word amen mean? I mean, we use that word. We say it all the time, but what does it really mean? The simplest explanation is the word amen means surely or truly. And it's most often used in Scripture to affirm the truthfulness of a statement. That's why people say amen after certain things are said. I can stand up here this morning, for example, and I can say, God is good, and you would say amen in response to that. We affirm that. We affirm the truthfulness, the certainty of that statement, but it's more than that. It's not just an affirmation. It's also a guarantee. And so when Jesus identifies himself as the amen, he's saying, I am the absolute truth. And not only can you count on me, but he's saying, you better count on me. You better pay attention to me because I am the absolute guarantee of the truth. And then Jesus says that he is the faithful and the true witness. And I'm going to keep this really simple. Jesus is just simply saying, not only do I tell the truth, but he's saying, and this is important, he's saying, I tell all the truth, 
all the truth. In other words, I don't pull any punches. I don't hide anything. I don't minimize anything. I don't exaggerate anything. I tell you the truth no matter how hard it is to say and no matter how hard it is to hear. He's absolutely faithful to the truth. He tells us what we need to hear. Do you have somebody like that in your life that speaks the truth into your life no matter what? If you do, you know how important that relationship is and you know how difficult that relationship can sometimes be. But Jesus saying, this is who I am. I'm the person who tells the truth, all the truth, all the time. And then finally, he identifies himself as the ruler of God's creation. And I could spend an entire hour talking about this phrase, but time doesn't allow. So let me just tell you that this is another way, significant way that Jesus is identifying himself as God Something, again, that he does throughout the seven letters in his introductions, reminding us again that he's speaking, he's writing from a position of absolute authority. When he says he's the ruler of God's creation, he's basically saying, it doesn't come across as strongly in our English Bibles, but he's basically saying he's the creator of all things. That's who Jesus is. He's the creator of all things. This is important for all of us to understand, but I want you to know, and this is really critical to our understanding of the letter, it was really important for the church in Laodicea to understand. I've got my NIV Bible like I always do, and I love my NIV Bible. In particular, I love the 1984 translation or version of the NIV Bible, and it uses this phrase of Jesus, the ruler of God's creation. As much as I love my NIV Bible, I think that rendering falls a little short. I mentioned that in the Greek. From the original language, I think it falls a little bit short. The word ruler that is used there in my NIV Bible comes from the Greek word arche. You can see it on the screen there. And the literal meaning of the Greek word arche is beginning or origin. If you happen to be reading from a King James Version Bible this morning, you'll see that your Bible uses the actual word beginning. And so when Jesus says that he is the ruler of God's creation, he says, I am the beginning. I am the origin of God's creation. That is important for us to understand because, again, it reminds us that he is God. It was important because, I want you to listen to me close, there was a false teaching that was going around at the time that these letters were being written, a false teaching that said that Jesus was a created being Not the creator, but a created being. And that's a false, false teaching. It's not just a false teaching, it's dangerous because it takes away from the authority that Jesus has as God. Remember, the Bible teaches us that there's one God. Everyone say one God. One God. But the Bible also teaches us that that one God lives at all times in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. He wasn't a created being. He's a part of the triune nature, reality of God. And this false teaching was dangerous because it caused people to question Jesus or think less of Jesus than they should have. And I think this was a specific issue that was needed in the church in Laodicea, a specific truth that needed to be communicated to the church in Laodicea. Here's why I say that. This false teaching that Jesus was a created being as opposed to being God the creator was prominent in the church that was located in the city of Colossae. Now, if you're familiar with your New Testament, you'll know that 
in the New Testament, the letter or the book of Colossians was written by Paul to the church in Colossae. And if you're familiar with the book of Colossians, you know that Paul went to great length. He spends a lot of time in the letter of Colossians talking about the truth, affirming the truth that Jesus is God because they had this heresy, this false teaching that they were battling that Jesus was a created being. Here's an interesting fact. Geographically, the church in Colossae was only 10 miles away from the church in Laodicea, only 10 miles away. And so it's easy, it's certainly easy to believe that given the close proximity of Colossae to Laodicea, that the same false teaching that had affected the church in Colossae was also affecting the church in Laodicea as well. In fact, when Paul brought his letter to the church in Colossae, the New Testament book of Colossians, to a close, in chapter 4 and verse 16, this is toward the end of the letter, he writes these words, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. I don't think it's an accident that Paul wrote those words. Remember, all the Bible, all the books in the Bible were written by human men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think the problem in the church in Laodicea and the reason why it was an unsaved church, the reason why it was a church filled with people who were not genuine believers is because this doctrine, this heresy that Jesus was a created being had crept into this church. And this is so important because I want you to listen to me. If you have the wrong view of Jesus, if you have the wrong view of Christ, I'm talking about the wrong view of who He is and what He alone has the power to offer, then you're going to have the wrong message of salvation. And if you have the wrong message of salvation, it's going to be possible for you to say that you are a Christian when you are really not. And so Jesus as he identifies himself in the introduction of this letter to the church in Laodicea, makes sure that he identifies himself as God, and that's what he means when he says that he is the, he is the amen and the, the, the true and the faithful witness and the ruler of God's creation, the origin of God's creation. And let me just say one more thing because I've been asked this question before and I want to be thorough this morning, especially given the close connection that I think is between the book of Colossians and this letter to the church in Laodicea. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, as a part of Paul's talking about the reality of who Jesus is, he writes these words. He says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. And that might sound confusing to some people because of the verbiage that Paul uses there for the firstborn over all creation. But we have to understand the meaning of the word firstborn. In the original language of the New Testament, that's the Greek word prototokos, and it has the primary meaning of preeminence. And Paul is writing that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, not the firstborn of creation. He's saying that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Why? Because He is the Creator. He is the Creator. He's God. He's the eternal God. And so here's the bottom line. Of all the churches that Jesus writes to, where he identifies himself in his introduction as being God, the church that needed to understand that the most was the church in Laodicea. They needed to know that he is writing to them from a position of absolute and unquestioned authority, that he's writing to them as God. And as he wrote to them as God, the first thing we see is what we'll call a concern. Write that down next to number one. And actually, concern, concern is an inadequate word. What we see here more than anything else is a condemnation. 
And the heart of that condemnation is found in the words of verses 15 and 16 where he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I want to pause here and I want us to make no mistake about what Jesus is communicating here because this can easily be misunderstood. Listen to me very close. Jesus is not telling these people that they're lazy in their faith. He is not telling these people that they are backslidden. Do you know that word? Have you ever heard that word, a backslidden Christian? I'm a backslider. I've gone the wrong direction in my life. He is not telling these believers that they're nominal, or these people, they're not believers, excuse me. He's not telling these people that they're nominal in their faith. He's telling them, you're not the real deal. You are not genuine believers. You are an unsaved church. And the fact that they presented themselves to be saved when they were not, the fact that they presented themselves to be something that they were not, spiritually speaking, made him sick. And that's why he said, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, as I read that verse and that reality in my NIV Bible, John uses or my NIV Bible rather uses the word spit. He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He says, because you're neither hot nor cold, because you're lukewarm, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. My NIV Bible uses the word spit. In the original language of the New Testament, that's the Greek word emeo, and a more accurate translation would be the word vomit. And so, and I'm not trying to be funny, and I'm not trying to be shocking, we need to understand Jesus is saying, you make me want to vomit when he writes this letter to this church. And friends, that's not just an arbitrary choice of words or an arbitrary metaphor that Jesus is using. This was language the Laodiceans would have understood, and they would have understood it because of their everyday experience of life. Historians say that the water supply that was used by the ancient city of Laodicea traveled several miles through an underground aqueduct before it reached the city, and consequently, by the time it got there, it was neither hot nor cold, it was lukewarm, and not only that, because it traveled through deep layers of minerals, when it got to them, it had a foul and a dirty taste and smell. It was sickening. And they would have known what Jesus was talking about because they would have known what it would be like to take a drink of water to swallow it and literally feel like it was making you want to vomit. And Jesus is saying, this is how you make me feel. This is how I feel when I look at you and your false profession of faith. Maybe the best way I can describe the church in Laodicea is to use a quote from John MacArthur. He says, some churches make Jesus weep, some make him angry. The church in Laodicea made him sick. And I hope we can appreciate the seriousness of these words this morning, not just for the church in Laodicea, but for the world that we live in today. But just in case it's not immediate apparent, immediately apparent rather to you, let me make sure that it's clear. Jesus is saying, if you claim salvation, if you claim to be a Christian, but you are not for whatever reason, I think primarily because you have the wrong view of Jesus, because you have a warped view or understanding of who Jesus is, a wrong belief about who Jesus is, and yet you make a profession of faith, he's saying, you make me sick. You make me sick. That's how Jesus feels towards people who make a profession of faith that is not genuine. Mount Pleasant Christian Church is what's known as an independent Christian church. You may or may not know that. 
I've been a part of this kind of church my whole life. Well, there's about 6,000 churches just like Mount Pleasant all across the country. We're non-denominational because there's no, there's no structure, there's no governing body that legislates what the church believes or how the church acts or, or what the church does. It's completely, uh, each church is completely independent. But growing up in this church my whole life, I've always taught that it was a, we had a brotherhood of churches. That was the word that was always used. We're a part of a brotherhood. And we're joined together with other churches because we have the same doctrinal beliefs and because together we support missionaries and Bible colleges and seminaries and parachurch organizations and the like. But each church is completely independent of each other as well. It's a kind of a unique relationship, independent, but at the same time joined together in a brotherhood. And so one of the slogans that was always used to describe our brotherhood, our fellowship with each other, and it's not a unique slogan to the Christian church, you've probably heard it before, is the slogan that goes like this, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. So in other words, there are certain, there are certain biblical truths, certain things from the Scriptures that are so critical and so essential to the Christian life that you and I don't have the freedom to have different views or opinions about those things. There's only one way they can be understood, interpreted, and applied to our lives. But at the same time, you and I both know that there are different things about the Christian life that we can sometimes have different beliefs about, and it's not critical to our salvation, it's not critical to our fellowship with one another. And so in those areas, there needs to be liberty or there needs to be some freedom, but at the bottom, the bottom line is that in all things, there's to be love. Some people disagree about what makes up the essentials. And that's always going to be the case. I think I have a smaller list of essential things than a lot of people do, but people disagree about that. But here it is, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. Let me tell you something that there can be no disagreement about. Let me tell you an essential truth that there's no room for difference of opinion about. That is the essential truth about what the Bible teaches us with regard to who Jesus is and what Jesus alone has to offer. And the Bible says that Jesus is God and Jesus alone offers salvation. Or in other words, salvation only comes through Jesus. There's no other way. That's why Jesus said himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said that in John chapter 14 and verse 6. Now, there are a lot of folks in the world today who call themselves believers or Christians, but the truth is they are not. And they are not because they don't believe the essential biblical truths about Jesus. They have a wrong view, a wrong warped view of who Jesus is and what Jesus alone has to offer. And when that's the case, when you have that wrong view of Jesus, your profession is not real. You are not saved. Let me describe that on a real practical level. And let me preface what I'm about to say by telling you and this is my third time to do this this weekend, especially those of you who may be new and you don't know me. I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm trying to be as honest and direct as I possibly can because my conscience will not allow me to be anything otherwise. So let me give you an example. When I'm at my house and somebody knocks on my door and I go to the door and I find that it's Mormon missionaries, I don't view those Mormon missionaries as my brothers or sisters in Christ who just happen to have a different view about some spiritual truths than I do. I don't view them as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't view them as my brothers and sisters in Christ because they don't believe and they don't embrace the biblical truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus is alone has to offer with regard to salvation. 
And with a, from a biblical perspective, and if you're a Christian, there's no other perspective for you to have than a purely biblical perspective. From a biblical perspective, there's no room for margin. There's no room for opinion on this matter, no, how, no matter how tolerating you want to be, no matter how accepting you want to be, no matter how nice and friendly you want to be. There's no room for difference of opinion with regard to Jesus and salvation. We're in a presidential election season in our country, much to the dismay of many of us because it seems to be a national embarrassment. But back when Governor Romney, who is a Mormon, was running as the presidential nominee against President Obama in the last presidential election, the pastor of the largest church in America was interviewed on multiple networks by multiple people multiple times related to Romney's profession of being a Mormon. And he was asked over and over again if he believed that Mitt Romney was a Christian. Here's a direct quote of one of his responses, and all of his responses were the same and consistent. This was his answer to this specific question, is a Mormon a true Christian? This is a direct quote. He said, well, in my mind they are. Mitt Romney says he believes in Christ as his Savior, and that's what I believe, so I'm not the one to judge the little details of it, so I believe they are. And when the interviewer, who obviously understood more about the question than the pastor of the largest church in America understood, started to share and detail some of the differences between the Christian and Mormon faiths, he went on to ask, do you not get hung up in these theological issues? And the, largest, the pastor of the largest church in America answered this way, I probably don't get hung up on them because I haven't really studied them or thought about them. And you shouldn't get mad at me today because I'm using Mormons or even Governor Romney as an example here. I, I have respect for Governor Romney. I voted for Governor Romney in the last presidential election. But even he and any devout Mormon would tell you the same thing. They don't believe the same things that Christians do. In fact, Governor Romney is on record. He spoke to the graduating class at Liberty University in 2012, one of the most Christian schools in our country. And in the commencement address that he delivered there in 2012, this is a direct quote. He said, people of different faiths, did you hear that? People of different faiths, like yours and mine, sometimes wonder where we can meet in common purpose. Note this, when there are so many differences in creed and theology, you shouldn't get upset with me for using him as an example. It's not the same. And here's the problem. First of all, the problem is that the pastor of the largest church in the United States of America hadn't taken the time to study that there's a difference between Mormonism and Christianity. But beyond that, when you take the time to find out what Mormons believe, in particular what they believe about Jesus, you find that they have a wrong view of Jesus. They believe that He is a God, but little g, little g God, not capital G, not eternal God, little g. And they also believe that any human, including you and me, is capable of becoming a God. And they believe that salvation is earned not exclusively through faith in Jesus, but by a combination of faith and works, which is in opposition to what the Bible teaches. And any devout Mormon will tell you that's the, that's the truth. That's the exact truth. 
So while a Mormon can go to great lengths in telling you all the things that they believe about Jesus, none of it makes up for their non-biblical view of who he is and what he offers. And I'm telling you again, don't you get upset with me. Don't you send me a single email or note about this. And I'm not just picking on Mormons. When Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, I do not view them as my brothers and sisters in Christ who just have a different view about certain things. And that's because they have a warped and a wrong and incorrect non-biblical view of who Jesus is as well. And you can't have a wrong view about who Jesus is and what he alone has to offer and have genuine salvation. You can't. But it's even more than that, friends. When someone, anyone, puts the assurance or the confidence of their salvation in anything other than the grace of God, which comes exclusively through Jesus, then their salvation is not genuine because it's based on works. And salvation, the Bible says, is based on God's grace alone. Your salvation is not based on your goodness. It's not based on the good things you do. You can be the most moral, upright person in the world, but the Bible says that you're still a sinner, that I'm still a sinner, that we're all still sinners, and there's only one response, only one answer for sin, and that is the grace of God that's offered through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And Jesus is the one who offers it because Jesus was not an ordinary man. He was not just a created being, and that's why when he went on the cross, his death was sufficient to pay the penalty for God's need in regard to justice, with regard to our sin. If he were just an ordinary man, at best, he could have given his life for one other ordinary man, but because he was God, he died for all of us, and he paid the price that was sufficient for God. You can't put your confidence in yourself. You can't put your confidence in, or in your faith in your parents or in your family or in a church or in some kind of religious affiliation or some kind of religious identification you might have in your life or your family. It has to be faith in Jesus, and it has to be a personal faith, your personal faith, your personal decision. Let me tell you one of the reasons why I'm sure, I'm certain this morning, one of the reasons why Jesus said that this false profession of faith made him sick, made him want to vomit. It's because Jesus knew that the absolute hardest people in the world to reach for Christ are the people who don't think that they need him because they're already saved. And it made him sick because it breaks his heart. And this was the reality of the church in Laodicea. They had an overblown sense of arrogance and self-confidence. You can read that in verse 17. I don't have the time to go back and read that, but you can see that, that, that they had a sense of, they had an overblown sense of their own importance, and they had a confidence in themselves, and it was something that they got from the city itself. The city was a wealthy city and a self-sufficient city in many ways, and I'm sure that that attitude bled into the church. So Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, you're not the real deal. You're an unsaved church, and your profession of salvation makes me sick. And listen, it's not that Jesus doesn't love unsaved people, because he does. Jesus loves all people deeply. He loves unsaved people deeply. If you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, or you're listening to me somewhere today, and you're never surrendered your life in faith and trust to Jesus, you're not a Christian, you need to know that Jesus loves you deeply. But when people who are not saved present themselves to be saved, then that makes Jesus sick. 
really quickly because I'm almost out of time. Right down next to number two, the words, the counsel slash command. The counsel slash command. In verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And then he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And then he says some of the most familiar words in all the Bible. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I wish I had time to talk about this more in detail. Basically, I want you to understand, everybody look up here, though, that Jesus is not saying that salvation is something that can be bought. When he says in verse 18 that uh, I counsel you to buy from me, he's just using verbiage to explain to them what they need. And he mentions three things. And, and they're fascinating because they all have this direct correlation to the city of Laodicea itself. First of all, it was a banking center, and so they were a very rich city. He said, you need gold refined with fire so that you can become rich. The point he makes there is this. You know, gold refined with fire is pure gold. He says, you need a pure message of salvation, not one that's false. You need one that's pure. And then he says, you need to wear white clothes so you can cover your shameful nakedness. They had another big industry in the city of Laodicea, which was, uh, was the uh, uh, production of wool. And in particular, they were well known for the production of a black wool. And he's saying, he's in words that they could really understand, he said, you need white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. You need white clothes that demonstrate genuine righteousness. And then he said, you need salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And there was a big medical community in the city of Laodicea. And one of the many things that they were credited with was the creation of this eye salve that was used to treat a variety of different eye problems and so that's why he uses this terminology he says you need to put salve on your eyes so that you can you can be released from your spiritual blindness and you can really see this is what he's telling them that they they need to do and after all that he tells them that the people that he loves he rebukes and he disciplines and so they need to respond with repentance now look up here at me this is repentance unto salvation This is repentance unto salvation. This is not the repentance that a believer sometimes needs to be involved in because they've gone the wrong direction in their life. This is repentance unto salvation because we're talking about an unsaved church. And then those familiar words. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That verse has been used over the years by many people with a very general application, and I suppose that's, that's fine. But the primary audience of Jesus' words were the people in Laodicea, these people who claimed to be followers but were not. People in ancient days had three meals a day just like you and I do, and they gave three different names to them, just like we call it breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or breakfast, lunch, and supper. They gave different names to those meals. The first two were very small and almost inconsequential. They were eaten on the run. They were just eaten as a part of life. They were very small meals. The third meal in ancient days, though, was the significant meal for those folks. It was the evening meal. It was equivalent to our supper. The word that they used in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, was the word dapnon to describe it. It was an evening meal, and it was a meal where people came in, and they sat down, and they lingered. They lingered into the evening as they shared food around the table. And it was more than just the eating of the food. It was the sharing of fellowship. It was the sharing of life. It was connection at the end of a long day. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says that he wants to come in. He wants to come in the door and eat with them. 
He wants to have supper with them. But the choice is up to them. It's their decision whether or not they'll invite him in. There's a famous 19th century painting by an artist named Holman Hunt called The Light of the World that depicts the reality of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. You can see it there on the screen. If you're like me, you remember seeing this painting in your Sunday school class when you were a kid growing up in church. It was a famous, famous painting. Jesus is standing outside of a door and notice that there's a lot of weeds and growth outside the door because the door has never really been opened. It's never been opened. It's been closed forever. And Jesus is standing there holding a lamp in one hand with the other. He's preparing to knock on the door. And notice that Jesus is wearing royal robes. He's got the crown of a king on his head because he's not coming to ask for something. He's coming to give something. Notice also it's getting dark. That's why he has a lamp in his hand. And it's getting dark, which means to us, which communicates to us that the day is almost done and the time to open the door is drawing near. It's almost up. But the most significant thing about the painting is that there's no handle on the outside of the door. It can only be opened from the inside. About 50 years after Holman Hunt painted this picture, someone suggested to him that he had made a mistake by failing to paint a knob on the door, and he corrected the person, pointing out that it was that way on purpose because he reminded the person that the door of our hearts that Jesus knocks on can only be opened from the inside, not the out. He never forces his way in. No one can unlock or open the door to your heart but you. And then finally, number three, Jesus gives the conclusion. Verses 21 and 22 say, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And then the familiar words from each letter, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have a promise and an invitation that's been at the conclusion of every one of these letters. And the promise here is that if you overcome, then you can sit with Christ on his throne just as he overcame and sat with the Father on his throne. I don't even know that I can find the words to describe the depth of that kind of fellowship that Jesus is inviting us to experience with him. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And of all the letters that we have read, and of all the churches who have been given this same invitation, is never more important than it was for the church in Laodicea, because this is Jesus saying to this church filled with non-believers, this unsaved church, this is Jesus saying, listen to me, please Please listen. And that's what Jesus says to all of us when our lives are far from him. That's what he says to all of us who for whatever reason have never put our faith and our trust in him or who have made the mistake of putting our faith and our trust in ourselves or in a church or in a denomination, or in our parents, or anything else. This is Jesus saying, please, please, listen to me. I want you to pray with me this morning. 
Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, for the living word, Jesus, who was more than just a man, who was God, who was literally God in human flesh, who came into the world, who clothed himself with flesh, came into the world, lived among us, and gave his life for us on the cross so that our sin could be forgiven, so that he could pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. This very week, this very week, not, not historically accurate on the calendar, but in celebration is that week, that last holy week when Jesus would travel to Jerusalem one final time on Friday. We'll, we'll gather in this place to worship Good Friday and remember the cross. Thank you for Jesus, the living word. And thank you for your written word, the Bible, that's like a two-edged sword that cuts and divides and pierces to the depth of who we are and speaks truth to us, even the most difficult truth at times to hear. And I pray that you would give us the courage and the humility to respond to your word when it convicts our hearts. I'm praying for anyone here today who's never put their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. I pray that they would do that today. I'm praying for anyone here today who is uncertain about their salvation, who doesn't for whatever reason have the assurance of their salvation. Maybe that's because it's not based on an absolute correct view of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus alone offers. And I pray they might respond. We can help that person. And I'm just praying for anyone here today who needs to repent in their life. To turn around and go the other direction. To turn away from sin and turn to God. I'm praying for all those things. And I'm so thankful for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing like we always do. I'll have some folks down front to pray with anybody who has a need today. We won't make this long and drawn out, but if you're a long way from God this morning, you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, would you come and let us explain to you what that means?